is where we started last week. Somebody tell me what we learned about James chapter 1 last week. Yes, James, James was the half-brother of Jesus. The guy that wrote this book of the Bible was the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus to start with. Exactly. We see that, that James and, and his brothers didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he wasn't who he said he was. But that changed, right? He went from somebody not believing in Jesus to somebody who wrote a book of the Bible talking about all these things that Jesus calls us to do. Did we learn anything else about James, about the book itself from that first verse? He was a true servant? Absolutely. Who did he write this to? The twelve. Who were the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Israel. The Israelites. The people of the early church in Jerusalem, that when the persecution of the church started, that group of people were spread through different areas, and they were no longer meeting together as that one single church. So James writes this book to them to encourage them. And we're going to jump right into verse number two tonight. Now, I promised you last week we're not going to spend every week on one verse because that would take forever. So we're going to jump in, and we're going to start with verse two, and we're going to go all the way to verse 12. And James has got some real interesting stuff to say that we're going to look at tonight. You see, we ended last week where James has that one word at the end of the first verse. What is that word? It's greetings. Greetings. And the original, Greek, the, the original way that word was written that term meant joy. It meant rejoice. It meant that you're supposed to be happy is what he's telling these Christians. And as we jump into verse 2, that's exactly where he starts. So let's go right there and see what it says. In verse 2 of James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read verse 2, that's got to be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible for me. Because verse 2 tells me that no matter what I come up against, I'm supposed to have joy. That's a hard thing to live out. I can think of things that have happened in my life today where my response has not been joy, but it's been anger or frustration or gotten an attitude about something. But see, James is telling us right here that, that we're supposed to count everything joy. When we face trials, when, when, when we come up against things that are happening in our life, remember now, remember when this was written, James is writing this to a group of people who have basically been run out of town. And you know, they're probably feeling rejected. They're probably scared because if you remember, they were being persecuted. They were being chased. People were trying to kill them because they were Christians. Now, if they're going to different areas, different lands, there's probably a little bit of culture shock there. There may be some language barriers that they're running into. And James is saying, guys, in the midst of all of this, of all of these things that you're facing, have joy. Have joy. These are unwelcome experiences. These are unwanted experiences for these people because their lives have been completely disrupted. And James is saying, in all of these things, when you face them, when you meet them, have joy. I mean, really, can, can we have joy? When you get up in the morning and you try to leave for school and the car just will not start. Now, you may have joy because you think you don't have to go to school. Or it's time to go to your game and the car won't start. Or your phone. Because you're using it in the bathroom, playing games, because I know none of you do that. And you get up and it accidentally falls in the toilet. Anybody ever had that problem? Yeah, I knew somebody would. 
that we can have joy in that moment? No, I'm thinking that's nasty. I want a new phone. Or when your parents come to you and say, you know what? We just don't love each other anymore. It says, have joy. Really? Or when somebody in your family gets sick and you don't know what's going to happen to their health, you don't know if they're going to live or die, Scripture says, have joy. How is that possible? How can we look at those situations? How can we face those things when we're feeling hurt and when we're feeling anger and sadness and have joy that he's talking about right here? And see, what James is trying to help us understand is that those emotions, those feelings that we have, those natural reactions, he's not trying to diminish those things. What he's trying to help us understand that is even in the midst of those things, when those terrible things are happening in our lives, we can still look at those things and know that there is joy that is available to us. We can know that there is a God who created every single one of us, and even though we may be going through something hard, that God still loves us more than anything else in this universe. Scripture tells us that he looked at all of creation in Genesis, and he said it was good, and then after he made man, he looked and said it was very good. We are the pinnacle. We are the top of what God created. He loves us above all creation, and that is why even in those moments, even when those things, those times are hard, he says you can have joy because if nothing else, you know that I created you, and I love you. And I loved you so much, my son died for you, each and every one of us. That's how we can know that joy is possible. Because we know who God is. Because we can know the creator of the universe and know that he loves each one of us personally, no matter where we've been, what we've done, how we've messed up in the past. That joy is available to us. And he tells us, even he tells us in the midst of this, those things have a purpose. When you face those trials, when you face those hard times, you can have joy because you can know that those things are, that you're going through, if you will let God work in your life, he's going to use those things. It says that in verse 3, after it says to have joy, uh, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, right there in verse 3, it tells us that when we face those things, it starts a process in our lives. It starts, a it starts things in motion that God is actually testing our faith through some of those things. You see, because what happens is when some of those hard things come to our lives, what we say we believe meets reality, and we've got to decide if we really believe those things about God. Is God really the God who works all things for good for those that love him? Does God really care about us more than anything else in creation? Does he really want the best for our lives? When we meet those hard times and we've got those tough situations going on, that's when that rubber hits the road and we've got to decide, is this real? Do I really believe what scripture says? And how we respond to those times, believe it or not, shows a lot about our faith in this God that we say we believe in. How we react shows if we actually believe what we say we believe or if we've just been hanging around everybody else for a long time and acting like everybody else, but we're not sure we really believe that. But it says that that testing produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness has its full effect that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
that as we allow God to work in our lives, that those trials, those hard things that come along, as we let him work in our life, we become mature. We start growing up in our faith. We start growing up and understanding that the things that we say we believe really do have some merit in our lives. They really do apply. Now, you see, I've, I've had the opportunity. I don't know if I, I think I've mentioned this young man in here before. I met a guy and back in 2008. His name was Blake Cook. He was, a, he was a sophomore in high school at that time, right? Blake was this young man, really cool guy, just on fire for God. And what I always thought was ironic is he had just this fire red hair that was down to his shoulders, and every, you could pick him out of a crowd, no problem. But Blake was one of the students in the youth group where we were down in Sarasota. He was there at everything. He was a leader in the group. He was on fire for God. He was leading people to Christ. And about three months after we got to Sarasota in 2008, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And we watched Blake as he struggled with this for about a little over two years, about two and a half years. He fought this fight with leukemia as he had it, and then he went into remission after he had the chemo. And as that fiery red hair just went away, I mean, it was gone. Still red freckles all over the place, but that hair was just gone. And it was amazing. I had a lot of conversations with Blake during this time when he had his battle with leukemia. And one of the things that stuck out to me, one of the first conversations I ever had, I had the chance to go stay with him a night in the hospital because his family couldn't be there. And as I'm talking to Blake, he's telling me in one minute how he's got these plans for his funeral. And if he doesn't beat leukemia, exactly what he wants done at his funeral. And not 10 minutes later, he's telling me what he wants to go to college for and how he's going to be a psychiatrist, and how he's going to help people, and he wants to help people know who Jesus Christ is. And I'm thinking, how can you have these same thoughts in the same conversation? I don't get it. And I asked him that, and he said, <laughs> he said, it's easy. He said, because I know no matter what, God's got my back. I know no matter what happens, God's going to take care of me. And it was amazing to watch Blake. He had good days, he had days where he felt just like garbage. And it was amazing to watch him through this entire time how he kept his focus on God. That even when things were going wrong, even when he felt like garbage, even when he didn't feel like he could get up out of bed in the morning, <laughs> he still focused on God and he found a way to have joy. But you know what? I can talk about Blake all day long. I want you guys to hear from Blake because about... I'd say is approximately two years after he was diagnosed, we had a Disciple Now weekend at our church. And we actually asked Blake to come and speak to the 600 plus students that were there. So if you would, Mr. Billy, go ahead and show that clip. He's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, and they are all churches have been around for a while and they've all kind of fallen away in a certain aspect of what they need to be doing and where they are. Um, and specifically, um, he's writing here um, to the uh, angel at the church of Lodi Laodicea. Um, and he uh, starts like this in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of the God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But do you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? 
I counsel you to buy from me refined gold in the fire so that you can become rich and wear white clothes so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and, and put salve onto your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To me, that really hits home pretty hard. Uh, you know, every day waking up and thinking, how am I going to live my life this day? And getting to the end of some of my days and just feeling rotten and coming to the end of other my days and feeling like I'm on top of the world. Um, you know, and it comes down to the question, how are we living our lives? Are we living them hot? Are we living them where everything that we have is coming to Christ unblemished? Or are we living a life that's kind of some things are there, but, you know, other things, you know, Bible doesn't really say that that's wrong, but does it? Um, and he says, I'm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You know, I don't, I don't want that there. You know, I'm, you are the wretch of the earth. If you aren't going to take what I've given you, if you're not going to take the, the freedom that we've been given in Christ, um, this amazing freedom that when Christ died on the cross, he took the shame, he took the lust, he took the sin, he took the chains, broke all of them down and said, I give you freedom. And then we choose to live lives lukewarm. And yes, <laughs> um, it's like we've forgotten what we've been given. Uh, we've for forgotten the, the salvation that we received when we said, you know, Christ, I want, I want to walk with you. I want a relationship with you. Um, you know, the Bible talks about us being the salt of the earth. Um, but if we lose our saltiness, how can we be salty again? We're not good for anything, um, except to be thrown on the ground and trampled by men. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's teaching that is very straightforward and really have to take to heart. It, you know, the Bible states, uh, you know, in uh, Ecclesiastes, the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, talks about everything's futile. Uh, he says, you know, what good are we to the world? You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, why do we keep chasing after the world in these dreams, or not these dreams, but things of the world, you know, the, the lust, the lies, the, the cuss words, the anything, um, you know, the, the fashion, the money that, you know, he talks about how everything is futile when it comes to Jesus Christ. So we've got this eternity set for us. We've got this inheritance in Christ that all we have to do is choose to follow it. And we find ourselves walking away from it on a daily basis, at least for me. Um, and it's just... It breaks my heart, and it's something that the Holy Spirit's really been convicting me about. Um, you know, every day getting up and purifying myself and saying, today, every thought is going to be brought captive to Jesus, and every action is going to be pulled to him in everything I do. You know, it's like, I've, you know, I've heard people say silly things and had conversations like, 
you know, how can, how can I use my Game Boy to honor Christ? Well, if, if you still play a Game Boy, um, then good luck. But, I mean, you could use your Game Boy to honor Christ. I mean, I'm sure there is a ministry out there based around Game Boys that honor Christ because people take them places and use it as connection to someone, use it as a way to communicate. There are people out there that will easily communicate if you bring come up and bring a Game Boy with them, start playing with them, and and you you know start a relationship there. It, you know, how can my car be used to honor Christ? Well, obviously, what goes on in your car needs to honor Christ. How, you know, the way you use your car, the places you go. I mean, we can use everything in our lives to honor Christ. And in the same way, we can use the things that He's blessed us with and the things that He's given us to do the complete opposite. Um, and it's just a, it comes down to the question of what do we want our lives to be about? At the end of your life, when it comes down to it, it, do you want to be the best dressed person out there who did a lot of really cool outfits and had a lot of really cool stuff? Or do you want to be standing at the gates of heaven? And he says, good job, my good and faithful servant. That was Blake. And that was, uh, <laughs> can't really talk about it without crying. About two months later, he passed away. But the amazing thing is that through that whole time that he fought leukemia, that was his attitude. He had a joy because he knew even on the days that he struggled, even on the days that he fought with what he knew God called him to do, he knew at the end of the day that he belonged to God. That's what this is talking about here. That's what James is saying, that no matter what we face, no matter what we come up against, we can have a joy in our life, even when it's hard, because we know who we belong to. And one of the other conversations I had with Blake not long before he passed away, don't you understand, Blake didn't come from a Christian home. His parents really didn't want anything to do with God. In fact, he got saved, I think, at 13 years old, and he was not even allowed to get baptized. His parents told him he couldn't get baptized until he was 18, and he was no longer living in their house. Now, I will tell you, once he got diagnosed with leukemia, they let him get baptized. And I got to do it, and that was so cool, because we used to do beach baptisms, and that it was just an amazing experience to be a part of that. But one of the conversations I had with Blake before he passed away, he, uh, he said, you know, he said, if I had to go through all of this, if nothing else, so my parents could see my faith in action, so that my family could see this is real. That's joy. That's what James is talking about here. To know that he went through all of that and his focus was the salvation of his family. Not, God, why did this happen to me? God, why are you letting me go through this? God, I don't want to die. I'm sure he asked those questions. I heard him say some of them. But his focus always came back to God. And God, how can you use this? How can you use this trial, this pain, this suffering right here, to work in my life and to work in the lives of other people. That's what James is talking about. When we face hard things, we know that we have a joy. We know that we have a God who loves us more than anything in this world. And no matter how hard it gets, how rough it gets, we can still have joy because God loves us more than anything else in this world. That's an amazing thing, guys. And I want to tell you right now, you don't have to miss out on that. Tonight, 
you can make the decision in your life that I want that joy. God gives you that opportunity. Don't miss it. It's not hard. We're all sinners. We have sin in our life. And God looks at us and says, you have sin. You can't be with me because of that sin. We're separated, God and us. But because he loves us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. Because there's a penalty for that sin, and it's death. Jesus paid that price, and three days later, he conquered sin, conquered death, so that we're no longer like this with God, but we're together with God. If we simply ask him for the forgiveness, if we simply tell him that we're a sinner, God, please forgive me. There's nothing I can do about that sin. I need your forgiveness. It's that easy. It doesn't stop there. That's when the real work starts. And that's what James kind of jumps on to next. James goes down to the next verse, and he starts talking about, um, excuse me, verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You see, once we start that relationship with Christ, there's an expectation for us. It's an expectation that we start growing in that relationship, that we start learning who God is. We start learning what God's will for is for our lives. You see, in the middle school this week, we've been talking about one area of that. We've been talking about the idea of true love weights, sexual purity. And that's not just the fact that, okay, we're not going to have sex until we get married. It's the idea that God has a much broader plan for our lives when it comes to that kind of purity. It's we're not going to have sex or do things outside of marriage that God designed to be done in marriage. But it's the way that we think. It's the things that we listen to. It's the movies that we watch. It's the websites that we go to. It's the friends that we hang around, the conversations that we have. It's all of that. And we've been talking to the middle schoolers about the idea that that is part of God's plan for us in maturing into the adult Christians that he's called us to be. And it's the same plan for you guys as high schoolers. In fact, Sunday, we're giving the middle schoolers an opportunity during the service to come down front and make a commitment and let the church pray for them as a whole in that commitment to remain pure until they get married and then beyond that point. Because sexual purity doesn't stop once you get married then you have a commitment to fulfill. And I want to tell you guys, you can take part in that on Sunday. It's not just for the middle school. If you know in your life, wherever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, if you know that you want to start over or you want to make a commitment from that day forward, God, this is where I know you want me to go for my life, and this is the plan I'm going to follow because that's what your word tells me, take part in that service on Sunday. Don't miss out on it. If nothing else, let your church pray for you because we know that's what God wants because that's what his word tells us. Growing up, becoming spiritually mature, part of that maturing process is what he talks about there in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you need wisdom, if you need help understanding what you're supposed to do in situations in your life, ask God, and it'll be given to you. Could that really be any clearer? No, it couldn't. But see, the funny thing is, that also comes with a catch. You see, God wants us to have that wisdom. God will give us that wisdom, and he will give it to us freely, but it does come with a catch. 
And that happens in verse six. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, if, if, if we're going to ask God for the wisdom to make the right decisions when we face hard times and we're not sure what to do in our life, if we're really going to ask him, we better expect results. He says, if you're going to ask me, you ask, but you don't ask me with doubt in your mind. It's like sometimes when we go to our parents and you know you really want to do something, but you know your parents are going to say no. You just know they're going to tell you no. But you get up the nerve and you walk over and you ask them anyway. But you can tell by the way you go to them that you're expecting them to tell you no. You say, you know, mom, dad, you know, I'd, I'd really like to do this. But I, I understand if you don't want me to do it, you know, but I'd, I'd really like to, you know, go to that party Friday night or, or I'd really like to go to this game. But, but I, I understand if you're going to tell me no. You see, before we ever ask that question, we're already defeated. We already expect the no answer. We don't expect results. What God is saying is don't have that attitude. If you ask him for wisdom, you better expect results because if you truly believe he's going to give it to you, you better be ready to receive it because he will give it to you. He may give it to you through scripture. He may give it to you through older adults who have walked longer with Christ in your life who will speak truth into your life. And sometimes that wisdom may not be what you want to hear, but he will give it to you if we ask with no doubting. Because he tells you what doubting is. It says you're like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. It's kind of like this. This bottle of water, there's a little bit of water in it right there. But this is frozen. What happens to that block of ice when I turn this back and forth? The ice isn't moving. But the water in it is, right? When we ask with no doubting, expecting God to give us the wisdom that we ask him for, you're like that block of ice. You don't move. You're there. You're steady. You know where God's taking you. You know what God wants you to do. When you ask, but there's doubt in your mind, you're like the water that's in that bottle. You go in whichever direction your circumstances turn you. God's saying, don't be the water. Don't let your circumstances determine where you go. Don't let your circumstances determine what you do. Because again, our attitude towards God when we ask him reveals what we truly believe about God. If we go to him and we already have doubt in our mind about what he's going to do in our lives, then we're basically saying, okay, I believe you're God, but I don't really believe you're that powerful. I believe you know all things, but there may be a couple things that you're not sure about. And see, Scripture tells us don't do that. If we truly seek God, we're going to get the answers we're looking for. We're going to get the response. We're, excuse me, we're going to get a response. It may not be the response we're looking for, but God will answer us, and God will show us what he wants us to do. James uses the word here for a double-minded man. Throw, throw that next slide up there. I want you guys to say this with me. This word is pronounced depsuchos. Say that. Depsuchos. You got to get a little phlegm in your throat there. Depsuchos. Say it. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, there you go. This, this is the Greek word. This is the original Greek word for, for the double-mindedness that James is talking about here. 
In, in the strictest literal translation, this means you're double-souled. It means, it means that there are two parts of your soul. One part of your soul is inside of you crying out to God, I believe. And the other part of your soul is standing right next to it going, I don't believe anything. James is saying, we can't live like that. Because when we live like that, we're like that wave of the sea. We're tossed back and forth. And if we truly live like that, then we shouldn't expect anything from God. If we can't expect one thing from him in this one area, if we doubt him here, then it's a pretty good chance we doubt him in every other area of our life. Because we either believe him or we don't. We either follow him or we don't. You heard Blake up there talking about the scripture where it says Christ tells us he would rather us be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. You either do follow God or you don't follow God. You trust him and you have faith that he's going to provide or you don't trust him and you don't have faith that he's going to provide. As I was going through this, I actually found a a quote from this author and he says this, a double-minded person is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. You see, in the midst of a trial, when we go to God, we've got to know if we truly believe God. We've got to know if we believe the Trump promises of what he said he's going to provide for us, that wisdom, because if we don't, then Scripture tells us we're not going to receive it. And then what do we do? We're great at going to our friends. We're great at going to our parents to look for advice. But the real advice we need is here. It's in God's word. And if we don't believe that that's what's going to help us out, then we're in a lot of trouble. So James says, ask for it and ask for it because it will be given to you freely. But be ready for the response, whether you like it or not. If you truly believe, don't doubt. Be ready because it's coming. And you're going to get exactly what you asked for. And then he keeps going in verse 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But James has given us a reminder here that the trials he's talked about None of us are immune to them. Nobody is immune to the trials of life. That's why what we believe in God or what we believe about God is so incredibly important. Where he's talking about the, uh, the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. You know, a lot of times we think of, we think of the homeless person. We think of the people that, that are destitute, that have very little, and we feel sorry for them, right? We feel sorry that they don't have maybe as much as we do that maybe they can't afford everything, maybe they live in the street under an overpass, we feel bad for them. And we'll stop every once in a while and we'll give them change. Or, you know, we'll take them a a, a dollar McDouble from McDonald's. Or we'll do something to try and help them out, but we feel bad for them. And see, what Christ is telling them right here, what James is telling them is that if they are in Christ, the lowly brother, that they should boast in their exaltation. Not in the fact that, hey, I'm poor, yay, but in the fact that if they are in Christ, they are God's creation. And that even though they've got hard times, they are the prize of God's eye. And that even through those trials, even through those tough things that they face, God loves them 
even though their life hasn't turned out maybe quite like they thought it was going to. It's not a boasting of pride. It's a boasting of I've got a God that loves me so much. He says, we can have that attitude. And where he says the rich in his humiliation, that's a good reminder for us that no matter how much we have, every bit of that is dependent on God. If God has blessed our lives with a lot or with a little, it's because God has chosen to bless our lives, not because we are great people and we deserve it or we've earned it. And that we've got to remember that every bit of that can be taken away at any moment. So we've got to be humble. We've got to remember that God is the one that provides. God is the one that takes away, that we rely on him for every single thing that we have, whether we've been granted a little or whether we've been granted a lot. And it's a reminder for us to know when we come to the end of our life, that mindset is the same thing that Blake talked about at the end, that we are going to stand before God and hopefully he's going to say, well done my good and faithful servant. Through the junk you went through, when your parents split up, when somebody died, when you lost your cell phone in the toilet, when your car wouldn't start, you kept your focus on me. You found joy in the midst of all of those things because you followed me and you had faith in me and you trusted me. And when you asked I provided. That's what James is talking about here. That we can have that mindset, every single one of us. And he finishes it off with verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. My question to you tonight is what trial are you facing right now? I believe every one of us in here is going through something. For some of us, it may be a much bigger life ordeal than others. But what trial are you facing? And in that trial, in those experiences that are happening in your life right now, do you have joy? Do you know that no matter how this situation turns out, God loves you? That no matter what hurts, what pains, what frustration, what sadness you're experiencing right now because of your situation, God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And he wants nothing more than for you to experience that love, to ask his forgiveness, and to follow and trust him because he's going to take care of you no matter what happens. I keep going back to Blake because... That's such a clear example in my head of the faith that James talks about lived out. And no, Blake was not a saint. Blake struggled. We all do. But man, to have that attitude. Do you have that attitude tonight? I want you guys to close your eyes for a second. Because I want a chance to pray for you. If you're here tonight and you're dealing with something, I'm not asking you to tell anybody what it is. But you know you're struggling with having joy in that situation. But you want it. You know God can provide it. I want to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. 
If you're here tonight and you don't know what that love feels like, you don't know what that joy looks like because you've never asked God for that love and you want that relationship tonight, I want to ask you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you and I want to encourage you to talk to myself and one of our adults in this room. you have something specifically you want us to pray for, write it on that green card that was in your chair when you came in. And as you stand up and sing at the beginning of this song, go put it in that basket near the front of the stage. We don't show these to everybody. I look at these every Thursday and I pray for you. Write that down. Because God does care about what you're going through does care about what trials you're facing. God, we do love you. God, we thank you so much. God, I, th I thank you for the book of James. God, it's a hard book. You smack us in the face with some of this stuff, God, but we know it's because you love us. And God, I pray for everybody in here. God, I pray for myself that when we face things, God, that we don't know how to get through we need your wisdom, God, that we can find the joy that you offer us. God, you are a merciful and a great God. And you care so much about us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.